Political developments in Afghanistan this last week are perhaps the most significant we have seen since the US first dropped bombs on Afghanistan in October of 2001. Um, since then, the US has withdrawn its armies from uh, Afghanistan. The Taliban have, in very quick succession, taken over the provincial capitals of Afghanistan, including Kabul. Um, and mainstream news outlets, of course, have continued to peddle the same baseless and bigoted narratives that serve the justification for the war on terror. Um, we hope tonight's conversation can form a part of a wider counter-narrative. Uh, this is The Convo, and tonight, Hila Popal and Wasim Dorehi stay with us. Okay, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh once again. Um, so as Sufyan has mentioned, we are talking about the very hot topic of Afghanistan today. Um, and we labeled our podcast today as Afghanistan graveyard of another empire because Afghanistan has been known as a graveyard of empires. Many successive powers have come one after the other trying to take over the place and have been duly ostracized and kicked out. Um, and so we're going to discuss these latest developments with our uh, two guests who I'd like to introduce. We've got Sister Hila Popal, who is a sessional academic and a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney within the School of Social and Political Sciences, Department of Government and International Relations. And we've also got Brother Wasim Durehi from the Media Office at Hizbut Tahrir Australia. So thank you both for agreeing to come on tonight, and we hope that we do have a good discussion regarding the topic. Inshallah. Very warm welcome to you guys for myself as well. And we'll get straight into it, inshallah. Guys, um, the news that we've seen has obviously been um, the talk of town. Um, United States 20-year war has come to an end um, and the government uh, that that they attempted to build there um, has, has all but failed. Um, of course, time will tell what our analysis and what the reality will show in the coming days and weeks and so forth. But I suppose let's start off with some of the specifics, um, the swiftness of the Taliban takeover and, and what you think that might say about the level of support that the Taliban enjoy amongst the Afghan people. Uh, if I can start with yourself, Hila, what are your thoughts on that? All right. Um... Um, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I begin with the name of God, um, the most merciful, the most compassionate. Um, my name is Hila Popal, as you all know, and I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me here. And um, to talk about the issue of Afghanistan. Okay. Um, first of all, um, first and foremost, I need to say this, that this issue is a very complex issue. And it cannot be resolved with a simplistic understanding of um, or uh, with binary positioning of pro-Taliban or anti-Taliban. First of all, I need to clarify this. If I'm um, analyzing the situation, if we try to analyze, there's a lot to unpack here. We need to look at all the contributing factors to the 
current situation in Afghanistan. And we need to understand people's situation currently on the ground there, their safety. Um, so whatever I'm going to be analyzing tonight, it's not that I'm supporting Taliban or I'm opposing, opposing them. It's mainly what is very important and currently for the people on the ground there, we see the situation, the images of people at the airport, which is heart-wrenching. It's very devastating to see them in that state. And what brought them there? Why are they um, in that state? Um, I, I wonder myself, Afghanistan, it's not the first time that they've gone through war. They have been through wars um, for the last few decades. But what made people brought them in this panic? Um, so there is a lot to, as I said, to look here, to unpack, to deconstruct these images, the state. First of all, um, if we look at it um, in terms of, okay, the swiftness of Taliban, mm. as you mentioned in the question takeover. So that's, again, a, a shock for people. Um, the way it happened, it was very quick. And people are in shock. And given the track record of Taliban, they have fear. This is real fear, which is uh, understandable. People are in fear. Um, how they treated women and uh, civilians back in 20 years back when Taliban were in power. So based on those fears, people are today in hysteria, in a panic state, which is very understandable. And how the Taliban's, um, at the same time, we need to look at the other side. The swift takeover was mainly the Taliban came strong and with a very good strategy that you wouldn't expect um, that they avoided bloodshed. We all were really worried for all the mm. civilians, for our families uh, in Afghanistan. But um, how it happened, it was everyone was in shock, including uh, U.S.'s president, that they didn't expect it to happen so quick. And as you mentioned, swiftly. Uh, so the main reason here to look at it is um, the situation in the last few years in Afghanistan was deteriorating. The security uh, was already at risk. When, um, if we talk to the families on the ground there, we, we, we could hear that they were already trying to escape before even the U.S.'s decision of withdrawal, uh, before Joe Biden pulls the flag. Um, and calls the troops home, this was already, um, the, the, the fear was there. In fact, I have my immediate family, my aunties, that escaped Afghanistan just before all this happened. Oh, they went to Turkey. Um, so, yeah, um, uh, th there is a lot that because of that insecurity. Um, is, yep. Yeah. So, sorry, can I just interrupt very quickly? Um, you mentioned that the, there's two notions. There's the swiftness of the takeover, um, and there's the level of, support that 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 uh, Taliban may possibly have been purported by some reporters and commentators to enjoy amongst the Afghan people. I wonder if you see the two things as connected. Um, do you feel that part of why they've taken over so swiftly is because they enjoy so much support now compared to, say, um, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago? Or possibly yes. could it also be a question of just being sick of the current state and the government and wanting something else, even if that means returning to a group that perhaps they didn't have the best experience with in the past. Yes, exactly. That's what I was getting at, that, that deteriorating security. And we also, I need to mention that we saw war crimes from US forces and their allies. Mm. Um, and we saw the 
uh, what happened with Australian soldiers, we saw it in the news here. Yeah. And that yeah. was the tip of the iceberg that what happened in Afghanistan. We see uh, videos of uh, these soldiers intimidating children on the street. So that all played a role of winning um, for Taliban to win support of the public there. So the, the trust from the government uh, was, uh, that trust was, uh, it was waning. It wasn't, they couldn't see that coming. And the soldiers on the ground, there are all stories that they weren't getting paid uh, for months. So mm. all that played a role. And when Taliban came out with this strongly and the strategic move of approaching the outer provinces first, going to the tribal leaders, negotiating yeah. uh, peacefully without bloodshed and talking to soldiers, it was a swift takeover in those provinces. And the strategy was to take over the other provinces before they approached Kabul, uh, the outer skirts of Kabul. So when they approached the outer skirts of Kabul, they were in a lot better state. They already had control of 80, 90% of Afghanistan's provinces. So, mm. yeah, that played a big part in Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. So, sorry, can I just uh, chime in there? Um, Wasim, you're looking impatient. We'll get to you soon, inshallah. Uh, but uh, I <laughs> how did you reach that, that conclusion? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just I always feel like you're chomping at the bit to say something. Anyway, um, so, sister, I guess I don't want to be sort of crude and ask for a number or anything, but like, what would you say, What? how would you describe the support for the Taliban in Afghanistan? Like, I don't know, would you say majority, minority, sizable minority? Like, How would you characterize it? How can we understand it? All right, that's, that's a very good point because we see now public Afghanistan's people, like um, the public are divided. Just like mm. we see the um, Afghan diaspora overseas, they are, they've got these divided uh, views. Um, you would see people now, there are uh, protests happening, demonstrations happening all over the world um, against Taliban's takeover. And then you have got people on the ground there that we hear from them that they are hopeful, especially mm. with the new message of um, Taliban that they are um, talking about bringing a just government. Um, they are also talking about at the moment um, about uh, women uh, allowing women for education to yeah. go to work. So these are some hopeful messages for people of Afghanistan. And if we look at it, um, they are tired of all these years of war and bloodshed. Yeah. They really need that stabilized government to take over and security. So uh, there is, um, I can't really tell the percentage of it, but there is a portion of people mm. that are still hopeful for Taliban's um, takeover that the corruption might be eradicated. There might be better state um, than before. Um, so that's something is still to be unfolded. Um, but yeah, um, yeah um, as I said, there is a still divided opinion. There are people who are still running in a panic and they're running to the airport to escape the country just because mm. they don't want to be ruled by Taliban. And uh, to be honest, that's um, I myself find um, find myself thinking that okay. Maybe we should give Taliban a chance, especially with their new messaging. Uh, it's it's optimistic, uh, and I hope I hope they live to that uh, what they are saying to those messages. Yeah. It looks very shiny. It looks good as long as it's not just for the time being. And when the West eyes um, um, they turn their eyes, uh, then their messaging or actions change. So this is the only fear that is now uh, stopping some people trusting them. Of course. Well, Sim, if I can bring you in, um, we're talking about, um, you know, the hope of the Afghan people. Um, and, you know, we can talk about what uh, various prime ministers around the world are saying and so forth. But if we get to the 
if we just get to the gist of it, um, something so important that's emerged um, in the last couple of days and weeks has been obviously the reinforcement of the Doha Agreement, um, which was signed between the Taliban and America in um, around this time last year, August 2020. Um, it speaks about, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to, to, I'm sure it's come up in the news many times, you'd be broadly familiar with it. But, you know, it has five points um, speaking to basically the, the people and uh, speaking to basically, you know, notions of um, the Taliban not uh, taking over, not uh, harboring terrorism within Afghanistan and that sort of language that we've seen, you know, from um, America in the past. Um, what are your thoughts on that agreement and the possibility of something uh, sort of like what that, what the language of that agreement uh, points to. Uh, Assalamualaikum.com.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au
Um, I'm sure Sister Hila will, with her through her academia, will appreciate um, and can and can add to this that notions like human rights and democracy and women's rights are always catch catch phrases used um, to spearhead imperial adventures in the Muslim world. Um, they are not values to which America is necessarily um, attached to and its experiences in Afghanistan for the last 20 years as a testimony to that. Uh, I heard Scott Morrison today uh, reiterate much of what Joe Biden has said, um, centering the, the, the condition of women in Afghanistan and the place of civilians in Afghanistan as if we are as if we all have a very short memory in terms of what America and Australia has done to Afghanistan for the last 20 years. Um, and that's why really we should take the position that um, we should completely ignore um, what America or Australia or any Western, Western government says or espouses or makes demands of Muslims in Afghanistan or anywhere else in the Muslim world. Uh, these are just colonial um, or imperial uh, imperatives uh, and slogans that we'll always use to justify geopolitical interests, the advancement of those geopolitical interests. Um, look, I don't want to spearhead into that conversation. I know there are, there are conversation points that you want to tease out, yeah. um, but there are no surprises. This is precisely what has been agreed upon, um, and time will tell exactly how this plays out and how much America will hold itself to that agreement and how much the dollar band can accept to hold itself to that agreement too. Can I, can I just jump in there? Sorry, Sufyan. Um, Wasim, you mentioned a couple of times there that the swiftness was no surprise, but like according to the world's media and according to most observers, it did seem to come as a surprise. Now, I know you're referencing um, the uh, Doha agreement and you know what was outlined in it, but surely the fact that there's an agreement there doesn't just equate to this almost walking into power kind of reality. Like, I think to say there's no surprise, does that almost make it seem like it, the way was paved for them? Like, is that what's being suggested? And further to that, sorry. Um, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say there, but yeah. Um, that is precisely what it means. Um, there are no surprises um, in the sense that, look, we can talk um, in terms of what's fresh in our memory given the experience, we're talking today about Afghanistan, but we have a very similar experience in Syria not too long ago. Um, if it wasn't for the intervention of foreign powers, local or foreign, um, then Assad would have fallen the day after uh, the people decided to stand up against him. Um, they have, they enjoy zero legitimacy amongst the eyes of the people. They're only a minority that support them because of a convergence of interests. Um, and in the same way, the Afghan government um, has zero legitimacy in the eyes of the people, um, given that they are installed at the behest of America and serve American interests mm. in the region. And experience, experience shows us that very, very clearly. Um, in the same way, there were um, many resistance fighters or movements that were in the dungeons in Syria and outside of Syria that for the same reason were released because they were in they were intended to be used for a specific political purpose and experience in syria tells us that they emerged from those dungeons specifically for that purpose and fulfilled those objectives quite spectacularly and so many of those who were negotiating with the taliban on behalf of the taliban today were held by either the americans or by the pakistanis on behalf of the americans when released 
uh, for a very specific purpose. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should look at the Taliban and those released of the Taliban in the same way we look at those who were released in Syria. Mm. Um, but the idea that America could alter the ways in which it seeks to achieve its strategic ob objectives, I don't think is a difficult um, uh, a difficult argument to absorb. Um, the military option is always one of multiple options available to any state. Um, and considering that it failed miserably on the military front, it sought to recoup whatever it could politically yep. by, by achieving that through alternative mm. means. Um, so, uh, uh, Wasim, if I can cut you there, um, we, we do give our, we do give our um, guests um, a, kind of like an open-ended uh, opportunity. Just put your views out there just so we can get you know, a nice engagement of what you believe and what you think and so forth. But I will caution, we will interrupt you a little more moving forward. Um, yeah, I, I think take, so. <laughs> I, I want to take I want to take a couple of the points that you mentioned and try and tease them out a little bit more. Um, and here, if I can ask for your opinion on this one, Wasim was talking about the Doha Agreement and these five points about having an inclusive government, you know, as a, someone who's specializing in Islamophobia and racism um, in Australian politics, um, you know, in, and in the words and the language of Australian politicians, I assume. Um, does that worry you? Does that language, the fact that it's coming from America as like a dictation to uh, to Afghanistan, that, you know, you should have an inclusive government, you shouldn't be harboring terrorists, like that kind of, does that worry you at all? Or do you think that, that that's perfectly fine, that that's the kind of stuff that we, anyone would expect of Afghanistan and the demands to be made of Afghanistan at this point? To be honest, um, yeah, honestly speaking, this is... Um, this is expected of um, America and their war on terror discourse. Um, initially, when the U.S. entered Afghanistan, they said that they entered because after 9-11 and the aftermath of 9-11, they entered because of the war on terror. And then the messaging changed around nation building and dignifying, liberating Afghan women. So this messaging was always there that we need to um, liberate Afghan women. So Afghan, they, now putting a condition on Taliban to have an inclusive government, to have women's rights, um, is something that international community expects of Taliban. Um, on the other side, when we get to hear that the international community is not um, officially recognizing Taliban unless they have that inclusiveness, they have those rights in place, um, they have no choice but to follow that for international international recognition as well. So this was um, to happen. And to be honest, even Afghan diaspora doesn't trust Taliban based on their track record. So for them to get that recognition, that officiality, then they have to conform to these um, international community rules, to these um, human mm -hmm. rights. And uh, to be honest, I myself, to feel safe with um, Taliban being in the government, I would want to see those first in place, the women's rights. And interesting. Uh, interesting. I know Brother Wissing has got a different take on this, but uh, uh, yeah. Before, um, we, before we jump to that, you know, what it, what it seems like to me now is that it almost looks like we've just gone back 20 years. Like, you know, the whole, like you were saying, sister, the whole save the Afghan woman thing, like that was a particular discourse that emerged at that time to justify particular ventures politically. And now it's like version two, it's just like round two. And it's like, well, has, has no one realized what that was said for back then? And now it's being said again. Um, it's just really, really interesting. But as you've also mentioned, the Taliban themselves have alluded to some kind of change. 
Um, do you buy that? Do you think that they are a different group or are they the same or are they playing some kind of game or what would be your thoughts on that? To be honest, um, I listened to some um, some of the professors analyzing, uh, political scientists analyzing the situation currently in Afghanistan and Taliban's discourse. And when we look at, um, when you mentioned U.S.'s discourse and over four presidents of um, U.S. presided over this war on terror or uh, America's presence in Afghanistan, when we look at them, change in messaging. So initially it was war on terror, then obviously uh, nation building, liberating mm. Afghan yeah, women, yeah. messaging, and then we see this um, um, stabilizing, and we we are here to stabilize Afghan government. And then we see we saw during Obama administration when they um, got Osama bin Laden, the mastermind behind 9/11, and then when they still said we need to be in Afghanistan before we leave, we need to make sure to have that stabilized government for Afghans before uh, we withdraw our troops. And then Trump administration decided that now we need our soldiers back home. So we see all these change in messaging and today um, here we are. And then at the end, when Biden pulled the plug, he mentioned specifically that we were never there for nation building. It's the right and responsibility of Afghans to decide for themselves for their future and how they want to pursue in this. That kind of backtracking, sorry, that kind of backtracking and that kind of language. Sister, I want to ask, um, and, you know, we're seeing, um, I'll get your thoughts on this as well shortly, but um, I think America has kind of flushed itself out and people feel very comfortable. Like I was reading some of the comments coming through on, I think it was either New York Times or Washington Post, their Instagram account where they was talking about, um, you know, they, they tried to whitewash the history and present a really, um, what's the word, sanitized version of what America did, you know, in Afghanistan, they presented this beautiful timeline as, as aesthetically beautiful, <laughs> but it was highly sanitized. Like it was really like, a, like you know, the savior has come to save us all. Um, but there were two, three, four hundred comments that just said, you are the ones that funded and established and gave the rise to the Taliban. So um, I wonder though, like for yourself and for the wider public, What are your thoughts on the international community? Because you mentioned the international community has certain expectations and so forth. I I personally, if I was to tell you, I kind of feel that same thing as well, that the international community, having stood idly by what's two million Afghanis, you know, being murdered brutally over the course of the last two, three decades, um, are equally culpable. Would Would you not think that's the case? Uh, Sister Hila, if you wanted to take that oh, one. Sorry, I thought that question is for Brother Wasim. Okay, uh, yeah. Um, so I, I, all, all along I thought you were in conversation with Brother Wasim. Um, yes, if you could please um, just reiterate what, what, what you Sure, sure. Um, I was just asking that, don't you think that, or what are your thoughts on the fact that, um, you know, the international community has stood idly by um, just as America played that active role the i suppose uh, international community some would say are equally culpable because they've just stood there passively and done nothing about the fact that two million afghans have been killed you know it's hard to take the argument seriously that they're concerned with you know my father made this argument this morning that how can you with a straight face come and say i care about the lives of afghan women when you've killed the afghan women and, and the children and so do you do you attribute that culpability to the international community to be honest, um, if we um, dig deeper and look at this 
um, politics, there's, as I said, there's a lot happening there. And if you look at it, um, U.S.'s foreign policies, their uh, war and terror discourse, their, discourse, their invasion strategy has got ripple effect. They've got their allies, the U.K., Australia. So these are the main um, powers. And when the international community, even United Nations, um, um, when we, we have seen um, instances that um, they have been passive when um, when U.S. decides with an invasion strategy and they go ahead to invade a country, even United Nations, um, yeah. they, they have been passive in this and they haven't even said much. Um, it's just that when you look at the broader politics and the, even the international community there, um, these, um, it has a ripple effect. Whatever um, U.S.'s foreign policy and their war of terror discourse, how they... Uh, put this narrative in place, how they, as you me you mentioned, and we had that discussion of putting women's rights as an excuse in the disguise of women's rights and um, liberating Afghan women, nation building, um, they, they justify their um, uh, political interests, uh, their presence in that in the country and international community. Um, is uh, I see that is echoing the same messages. Yeah, and even yeah. today, now we see that, okay, international community is saying the same thing to Taliban, that, okay, um, what hurts me that if America um, or the U.S. Trump administration made a deal with Taliban and hand in Afghanistan to Taliban, um, then on the other hand, why do we see messages of that Taliban is an uh, is a terrorist organization or they could be harboring uh, Al-Qaeda? So these are um, what um, really it's, I can't comprehend what is going on here. And as you mentioned, we all know there are messages, there are articles about it that initially Taliban was funded and armed by the U.S. So what's happening here? What has changed? What is the mission and vision of Taliban now? Uh, would they stick to what they are saying now? Um, this I is all to be, to be unfolded exactly. Yep. yep. Well, Sim, um, I take it you're not a fan of the international community. Is there some, is there some international architecture? Is there something there that we should be turning towards to try and um, leverage, you know, a new way forward? Um, I'll try to express this in the most polite way, um, because my sentiments, um, you know, are, are really quite, um, quite raging at the moment. Not because of the conversation we're having, but because of the discourse that's been pushed on the Muslims. Given rage the politely then. Um, look, uh, we should be embarrassed if we are still, um, if terms like uh, women's rights and human rights and democracy are still part of our conversation. Um, and we should be equally dismayed um, that after 20 years of the war on terror, we still give legitimacy to the liberalizing project that underpin the war on terror. By, by referring back to those very same doctrines and principles that legitimize the war on terror to begin with. Um, America and the West should be given absolutely no credence and no ability to um, hold us to account by any standard um, that they seek to hold us to account. Um, we as Muslims, as part of an ummah, should be having our own conversations uh, where Islam is centered um, and we define ourselves and our politics and the, and the future condition of Afghanistan and the wider Muslim world on the basis of that. We have a very unique opportunity to completely uh, destroy the liberalizing project, given the experiences of the war on terror, um, given the experiences in Afghanistan. And really, we should 
give the West no recourse or no ability to continue to beat us with that stick um, and centering the conversation around the Taliban and whether they will um, meet the standards that the West has set, again, only reinforces uh, the centering of a politics that ultimately serve the basis of the war on terror. And we should not just be embarrassed by that, but we should be appalled and disgusted by that um, for legitimizing a politics that was the basis of our own destruction over the last 20 years. So yes, this fanciful idea of international law, the international community of women's rights, of human rights, really need to be discarded wholly and unequivocally and we need to adopt a discourse where only Islam is centered. Um, part of that, in all honesty, um, is that we need to completely ignore uh, what the West is saying um, and, the, and the standards that the West is seeking to impose. They have no moral legitimacy um, and no political legitimacy to even make such a demand. Um, and we should be very clear about that. And it's not because we're not concerned about the condition of the people, of civilians, of women, of young, of old, of people of different ethnicities or different creeds or different religions. We know very clearly as Muslims, these are sacrosanct ideals, which Islam alone, we believe only Islam alone can protect and can, um, can elevate to the highest standards. So we should not be allowing uh, Western discourse and the liberalizing project to enter our conversation as if it has any space um, or any right to be part of that conversation. So we should be very firm in our rejection of everything that represents the liberalizing project, um, given the, our experiences over the last 20 years in Afghanistan. What, what does that look like, though? Like, if I can ask you, um, Pakistan is to the east of Afghanistan, right? And America has pushed its its project, whether it's a liberalizing project. You know, the, the mechanisms to push that were the establishment of military bases in Pakistan to surveil and, and to do whatever else America is really good at doing. Um, I'm just trying to think. We've got Pakistan. You've got, obviously, America, the international architecture. What does someone who has a keen interest on um, establishing a strong, independent way forward, like, what does someone like that turn to then? You know, you can't just, you can't, it, it sounds a little bit fanciful. Like, how do we actually move forward in practical terms? Like, do, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Sure. That's a very good question. And it's something that Muslims really should be grappling with day in, day out. And this is really the, the center of, what should be our concern? Um, there's two two quick things I want to mention here. First of all, um, we really need a firm um, understanding of our Islam, um, tied back to the example of the Prophet but in a way that uh, doesn't discount um, our modern realities. Um, we need to be clear about how we can reapply uh, Islam in the way that it should be applied, given our immediate realities in the 21st century. That doesn't mean that Islam changes or its doctrines changes or its ahkam, its sharia changes. It just means we are cognizant of the, as Sister Hila points out, the, the complexity of modern life. Um, and we need to marry that with Islam that is inherently a part of Islam. It's not something that we're imposing on it. It's a natural reflection of Islam. So clearly that's an, uh, that's an instruction about a certain type of um, simplistic view of Islam uh, which Muslims have plenty of experience in in the last century um, that sought to bastardize Islam and offered a very medieval view of um, what otherwise should be a very enlightened project. Secondly, um, we're not going to be in a position to do that as an ummah unless we enjoy a certain level of independence and that independence has to come 
um, from a discursive point of view, from a political point of view, from an economic point of view, um, we need to allow ourselves to create a space where we can facilitate such a project. And part of the challenge that we face um, and part of the trap that the Taliban have walked into is that they have confined themselves to the, to the parameters of modern nation statehood, um, which by invention were always designed to, to strangle us as Muslims. They, they divided us in a way such that any portion of us can't stand up and resist Western hegemony in all its forms. Um, and so if you do not advance a transnational project centered in Islam that is designed to give Muslims space um, to recapture their political will, to exploit their collective intellectual and economic resources, then we're going to be forever um, you know, talking to ourselves to a point where we're not going to advance in any particular way. Um, it's not difficult if we can, it's not difficult to appreciate that if we confine ourselves to uh, the confines of modern statehood, then we effectively accept to be entrapped by the, the very foundations of what, uh, what is referred to, quote unquote, as the international community, which is a set of standards and laws and expectations that were set by our enemies and not ourselves. Um, sister, Wasim talks about this we, he constantly says we. And, you know, in the, um, in the, in the lead up to this, before we did go live, you were asking if he's from Afghanistan himself, which he isn't. Um, but he talks about we, he talks about transnational projects, whereas the Taliban's talking about the Islamic Emirate of, of Afghanistan. Um, mm. It is obviously respecting that sense of nation-statehood nation or sovereignty and, and whatever else. Um, do you think there is scope to have a conversation around such a transnational project, even if it's not in the immediate term? Do you think there's a, there's a scope to have that conversation and to build a politics on that basis? To be honest, I wanted to um, ask Brother Wasim that, yes, I agree with those notions of having the true teachings of Islam. And uh, um, we can only progress if we have those true teachings in place. And, um, and, and my question is that what Taliban do the true teachings of Islam? Um, that's the doubt the question mark comes. Um, I wish and my message, message and um, my hope is this um, to Taliban that they can pursue with the true teachings of Islam. They can run the state with the, I'm like, we have the role model, the prophets, someone's example, oh, how he did. And even um, every saint to conformity to the modern, um, these modernities today, we know that he was um, the one who called out racism at the time when um, we have uh, the stories of America still entrenched in racism with segregation of white and black. Um, and at that time, 1400 years ago, when our prophet called out racism. So we, ha we have all those principles in place, but the problem is that um, the implementation of it and Taliban needs to adhere to these true teachings um, and be a role model to the um, international community. I think if they uh, do that, then there is a chance um, if there is true notion of Islam and not just using Islam for political gains, then there is a chance um, with a true message that we can talk as a nation state and we can talk with different Muslim countries forming um, in that region. Uh, but but uh, the whole um, point of the Taliban not adhering to the true teachings and being really extreme and harsh in their messaging and in their practices 20 years ago is um, what Afghan diaspora is worried about, and Afghans themselves, is, they're escaping the country because of all those harsh messages. So I'm not sure 
I believe that the um, true Islamic government based on the true teachings was in place, then Afghans, they don't need to flee the country. Um, everyone will be peacefully living there. Like we have the examples in the golden ages of Islam. Hmm. Um, the women's right, everything. These things weren't an issue before. Um, it only came when we saw the atrocities by ISIS, by Al-Qaeda, and then initially what Taliban did, it just diluted the image of Islam, the messages of Islam, and vilified the name of Islam. And that's what I do in my research now, looking at Islamophobia and what caused all this and what um, uh, what war and terror now is targeting, or we see these messages, um, capitalizing on these stereotypes, um, uh, Muslim misogyny uh, is a um, main excuse for uh, these um, right-wing politicians to use against Muslims and Taliban is now um, an image for them to um, sort of feed into Islamophobic narrative now. This is what I'm afraid of, that if Taliban is not being a good role model there and they're using still Islam as a, uh, like that we're going to run an Islamic government, that's when I'm afraid that this will feed into Islamophobic narrative to these politi- uh, some of the right-wing or far-right politicians that they would capitalize on those tragedies. If I can just um, add something to that, yeah. Uh, look, there's, there's two things that immediately come to mind when you when you say that. Um, first of all, is that the problem with modern nationhood, um, without becoming too abstract, is that it's fundamentally constructed upon arbitrary racial structures um, and racialness, um, and when you're never going to be able to absolve yourself of that inerrant conundrum, um, if we accept to govern on the basis of, on the basis of the modern nationhood. Um, That's the first point. And secondly, um, the experience of modern nationhood for the most part is that, um, and this is consistent with what's been asked of the Taliban with the Doha Agreement, is that you need to facilitate the construction of democratic institutions um, and establish on that basis secular societies, which clearly is going to be problematic for us as Muslims, given that we believe that sovereignty should only be in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, if we just draw broad principles um, and we view Islam in that way, um, then we won't necessarily see a contradiction. Um, but when it comes to the application of, of Islam and its, 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 its prescription of various ahkam, um, then we're going to see the, the inherent contradiction between the two. Um, and so the way you facilitate um, uh, poli- the construction of political institutions, the purpose for which they're created, the, the way in which they function, um, the relationship between the ruler and the ruled, how you organize the economy, how you organize the judiciary. Um, these are matters that the international community, whichever way you seek to express your Islam, is going to have a problem with, um, which is why I say if we are in a position as, a, as an ummah, of which Afghanistan is an inherent part, uh, to completely ignore this question um, and to ignore their gaze, um, then we would be more more busy with facilitating a set of circumstances where we are not beholden to the Western gaze. Uh, so they can't hold us ransom with IMF loans or construction project loans or um, access to international markets and things like that. So we need to really re, um, reconsider how we, we view our Islam away from broad principles because when it comes to its practicality, there is no escaping the contradiction between what Islam is going to demand of us and what modern nationhood is going to demand of us. And this is a big question um, that the Taliban is going to face 
um, can it withstand the pressures of the international community to um, to hold itself to Western standards as opposed to the standards that Islam demands? If we Look, um, sorry, can I just jump in there? I think um, with Sim, what you're saying, it, it does it does somewhat resonate because I guess even if you look at us having this conversation right now, right, you've got two hosts who have Pakistani background, you've got an Afghan sister, you've got a Lebanese brother, you've got an Indonesian brother hiding behind that convo icon there as our tech guy, right? But we're all concerned about the matter of Afghanistan, not because of any Afghan ethnicity, but because of our deen, right? That's why we want to talk about it. That's why we have that very real and genuine concern. Um, and sister, I guess coming off of what Wasim was saying, um, I guess I want to talk about the, or just mention, the narrative, right? So Wasim was talking about, we've got to do away with it, right? The whole liberalizing project and everything else. Um, so when we hear things like democracy and everything else and, and those terms being thrown around, um, do you think that Afghans buy that anymore? Like, do you think they actually take that seriously? Those kinds of systems where, you know, people come and try and impose? How does it feel on the ground there? To be honest, um, when we saw um, that U.S. tried to establish that democratic government um, um, and um, 2004 with the election of president um, in Afghanistan, democratic elections, um, um, it was something that a portion of Afghanistan were happy with, that, okay, we are getting to these standards of democracy. And then uh, uh, there were people still that were not agreeing to that point. Mm. So they, they still, um, I think Afghan nations are still um, divided. They don't have a unified message or a unified opinion there. Uh, but. Um, to be honest, I myself, when I think of it, there is nothing wrong with democracy if it's done properly. It's still under the teachings of Islam. You can have a democratic government, democratically elected government with the teachings of Islam uh, that people are happy with. Um, but I think, to be honest, Afghanistan is not in a state at the moment to go ahead with those fancy terms. I think, that, look, if I can just mention something, um, away from whether we agree or disagree whether democracy is Islamic or not, um, we really need to question why we feel so feel it so imperative in order to imagine ourselves and our future through such discourses. Um, why do we feel so compelled to measure ourselves by that standard if, as you're suggesting and as we all suggest, that as we are Muslims and as an ummah, we have something unique that is in our possession and we have the example of the Prophet Sallallahu So why do we, in principle, need to refer to something that's sourced from outside of Islam in order to imagine a future for ourselves. Um, away from whether we agree or disagree about democracy itself, and obviously my position is that it is completely un-Islamic given its position on the question of sovereignty, but away from that, um, why do we feel compelled uh, to have to imagine ourselves and our future through such, um, uh, through such foreign ontologies given that we have in our possession Islam itself. That's a valid point that you are mentioning, uh, Brother Wasim, but how, um, where would the support for Afghanistan would come? Um, which neighboring country would um, be with Afghanistan with that sort of system? Um, we see the neighboring countries around us, um, the uh, strong presence of international community and foreign forces there, um, I don't know how to win support with that project. It seems almost 
impossible. Um, I, I don't know how everything will unfold with Taliban and Afghan nation themselves are very, um, I would say, um, um, anti-Taliban, most of them, uh, in terms of those their harsh messaging. But they need to set a good example to win the trust of people first, um, to have a stabilized government first. And once we have that prosperity in Afghanistan, then we're talking about um, how to pursue it and progress in that view. Uh, and I don't know uh, how they would gain support of the neighboring countries. I think the difficulty is that, and um, whilst in principle I agree with you, that the conditions in which the Taliban has accepted to be in government ultimately has set itself up for failure. And I don't think that's accidental either. There are many um, past Islamic movements that have fallen into the same trap that who, whose origins were as a resistant movement um, that were enticed to enter the political paradigm. Um, and in fact, in many instances were handed political power. Um, and this ultimately destroyed its credibility given its inability to govern, given their inability to govern. And I think the Taliban, unfortunately, again, has walked into a trap where the conditions um, are such that it's almost been set up for failure. And what I'm concerned about um, more than anything, um, apart from the reality on the ground and its impact upon the common man, um, is that in the eyes of the Muslims, this is going to be another example of the failure of the Islamic project. And I don't think that's accidental um, in the West creating the conditions to reinforce that sentiment such that we never imagine ourselves having the ability to unite or the ability to govern on the basis of Islam. And I think some of the commentary that we've seen, I mean, it's lovely part of the underlying thinking behind the podcast is to have a conversation happening between the guests and we'd love to take that step back, but we'd also love to chime in every now and then. <laughs> um, um, I think some of that commentary has been reinforced as well um, in the State Department in the US. Um, they've come around and said, you know, we could leave. Ultimately, everyone's just, just reinforced this point. I've got some transcripts here as well where they talk about um, this gentleman who worked in the uh, U.S. State Department from the 80s all the way until the mid-90s and has been advising uh, the U.S. government, uh, Richard Haas, on uh, on the notion of Afghanistan. And, you know, I just found it nauseating the way that, you know, the, he was on a podcast, it was a 20-minute podcast, and the, and, the, um, and the opening question was, did you think that going into Afghanistan was a mistake? And his answer, and I'll read this out word for word, was that um, we were 100% right to go into Afghanistan. Um, we gave the Taliban a choice. The Taliban made the wrong choice. It was a fateful choice for them. Um, and we set the precedent from there. So, you know, that kind of language, I just think they've, they've walked out of Afghanistan and said that, you know, it is what it is. Afghanistan deals with its problems itself, um, has been reinforced in various circles in America, um, and I think it, it just leaves us with the question of um, they know that, you know, we know that America doesn't expect anything great to come from here. We are sort of, you know, I feel there's some level of agreement between yourselves as well that America is not someone that we should be looking at, nor is the international community like, you know, necessarily a source of great inspiration for us. Um, but I still want to bed down some like something more, something more practical if possible. Like how do we... Um, if, if let's say hypothetically speaking, if Taliban was to ask, you know, Hila Popal or Wasim Durehi for a kind of manifesto for change, a manifesto of moving forward, you know, what advice would you guys give? Um, Hila, if I can ask you first. Um, my advice would be um, 
to do their best with the teachings of Islam and get the best of both worlds, um, get the best values that we can see uh, from Western countries, um, if it's working um, in terms of nation building, in terms of women's rights, within the Islamic framework. It doesn't have to be anti-Islam. We can still get the goods of both worlds um, and then and, uh, put it into practice or exercise it within Islamic framework. Um, that's, that's my idea and my probably... I hope that Taliban can do that in a better way to be a better role model for the Muslim world and for the wider community in the Muslim world. Um, so they don't let any more um, finger pointing at them. Uh, and, and what I'm still concerned that this whole um, images of um, Afghanistan coming out and seeing women in, in those disastrous situations will, will create more Islamophobia around the world, more um, Islamophobic narratives add to that. So if they can do in the best shape to set a, a good example of an Islamic country, um, um, that, that would be the best case scenario to have goods of both worlds. Wasim, it seems as though you're not particularly hopeful <laughs> from some of your previous commentary. Um, look, so what do you think? Look, How do you think this <coughs> might pan out? Or what would um, you say? Look, I wouldn't put it that way. Um, look, from an Islamic point of view, if you're in a position of responsibility, even if it's less than ideal, you have a divine responsibility to, to act accordingly. Um, and so from an Islamic point of view, you need to hold yourself to the standards of Islam. Um, so if even if you cannot implement the totality of Islam, those areas which you do have control, do it to the best of your ability in a way that's consistent with Islam. So treat the people with justice, um, uh, you know, avoid the corruption, avoid the misapplication of the deen, and don't focus on those aspects where you punish the people, um, given your inability to provide for them, for instance. Um, again, our experience in Syria tells us that you need to be very weary of your relations with your neighbours um, and the representatives of those countries. Um, many of the resistance movements in Syria thought that many from the Gulf country, from Turkey, from other countries were, had their best interests at heart. Um, but time revealed that they were just means by which America employed to, to run the resistance into the wall. And some used financial, um, um, financial slavery, others used uh, political patronage, others used the barrel of the gun, um, but they were all designed to run the resistance into the wall. <laughs> And the Taliban need to be aware of that. You cannot close your eyes and ignore the world in front of you. You cannot cut yourself off and not have relations um, with your neighbours, but you need to be very weary. And so the idea that you need, it's been instructed that you need to form an inclusive government, what that means is that America wants to preserve what political capital it still, it still maintains in that country by ensuring its agents have a share in the power and can apply the pressure on the Taliban when it's needed. Um, the fact that you respect the territorial borders means, of course, that um, you are going to narrow your, uh, your conception of the Islamic project such that it doesn't challenge Western hegemony. Now, again, these are realities that are forced upon us, um, but in the realm that you do enjoy um, some flexibility or some independence, you need to exercise that with the greatest level of responsibility and you need to do justly with the people um, until the set of conditions will change and only Allah knows when those conditions will change and how they will change. But the world is changing very quickly um, and you need to just take care of your responsibilities until the circumstances change and then we can get on with the wider Islamic project. Uh, Hila, if I can get your comment on some of that. So Wasim has mentioned now and, and, and earlier as well, he talks about this um, 
you know, capitalizing on the opportunity that that presents itself, given the political reality that we see in Afghanistan right now. Um, you know, I know you mentioned that Islam should be implemented in terms of those examples that were given in terms of justice, in terms of protecting women and so forth. But but your comment, if you will, on implementing Islam from the from a political point of view, like cementing the progress that's been made and really cutting off the arm of America from interfering in the domestic affairs of Afghanistan. Do you see that as like a implementation of Islamic principles from a political point of view as well? Well, um, in my understanding, um, as far as Islam allows you, you have that flexibility that it is not against Islamic principles. You need to stand your ground. You need to be strong that this is my Islamic principle. This is the Islamic framework. As long as I can fit in the expectation of the West within that Islamic framework, then that's okay. But then there are no go zones that you need to be clear to, uh, when you are negotiating with the international community that this is where I, um, I, I cannot go anymore. Um, so as long as you can still implement and keep relations with um, the international community, keep relations with your neighboring countries, um, but you're not compromising on your Islamic principles. Um, so as long as you have that flexibility, then, um, um, yeah, you can still uh, have a peace deal with them. Um, 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 I, I don't know how it is feasible to uh, mm -hmm. completely disconnect from um, um, the U.S. Uh, international community. Um, I don't know how is that feasible, that option. Obviously, we all want a peaceful Islamic government, but still we can have an inclusive mm -hmm. um, attitude towards our other counterparts of other religion, um, as long as it's not um, damaging Islam or Muslims. Yeah. Um, just on that point, in fact, um, the Taliban spokesperson, um, Sahel Shaheen, if I'm not mistaken, um, he was mentioning not long ago that countries like America and Australia actually have a moral responsibility to assist in sort of um, revitalizing Afghanistan. But uh, for me personally, I feel like you're walking quite a tightrope there if you're invoking some of those who came in and sort of hammered the country to the ground, unfortunately, and then saying that, look, you have a responsibility to fix it now. Um, it seems like that's a bit of a jump in trust, but I guess uh, we'll have to see how things go from there. Speaking um, of America, sorry, Hamza, speaking of America's moral obligation and Australia's, he did specifically, I think, call on Australia yeah, yeah, as having America, a yeah. moral, moral obligation. Uh, if we could just have a quick play of that video, which I was mentioning earlier, uh, our, our viewers can watch it. You guys have seen it and we'll just return on the other side of this. Mr. Speaker, together with our allies and partners, we also laboured long and hard to help the Afghan people secure a better future, to restore a broken state. We invested in schools, in healthcare, in power generation and more. We educated, well, sort of the education of women and girls. Heartbreakingly, the fruits from those seeds of hope are now very uncertain. We must recognise with realism and humility the limits of our power and resources to secure the outcome so many Afghans, not least millions of women and children, yearn for. But let no one say this noble, noble endeavour 
was anything other than a sign so, of what Mark's so Australian just, sorry, sacrifice to return for the to that, that question, you know, he's talking about um, the just cause that Australia um, committed itself yeah, to and the moral obligation that, uh, uh, that you know, Sohel Shaheen's talking about. Um, if, if I, I'm, I'm trying to uh, sort of invoke that, that conversation as an example of the, 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 the cutting off the hand of the West. So, sister, I, I'm totally with you. I think that um, a modern nation state is one that is uh, networks, that one that collaborates, one that is built on, you know, cooperation and so forth. But there's got to be certain red lines. I think when you've got an invading force come into your country and then leave and, and say that we educated the women of Afghanistan um, when all they really did was brutally murder them, I think that's surely the red line that I was referring to earlier about cutting off the hand of foreign interference. How strongly do you feel about, you know, again, I, I, I'm particularly interested in your view as someone who's studying Islamophobia um, in the language of the Australian politicians. How strongly do you feel um, it is important to cut off that hand of Western interference? To be honest, studying Islamophobia in Australian political discourse, um, um, looking at Morrison's speeches, parliamentary speeches about Muslims and about his language about refugees, and I see that there, that how um, he is talking about refugees and that um, that language of that um, I can identify the discursive strategy of generalization when there is an incident, a crime done by a Muslim, and we see that generalization strategy in use that to cast suspicion on the entire Muslim community and uh, uh, present them as a, a terrorist sympathizer um, is very damaging to our Muslim image. And now coming to Afghanistan, when we're looking at the situation there, yes, they are mentioning that we um, had a just cause um, I'm not denying that they did some um, um, they uh, did some contribution towards education or towards allowing women in the parliament or for, um, to go to work. Um, but at the same time, we witness other war crimes and atrocities and other uh, drawbacks there. So it's it's, it's really hard. Uh, I I don't know how to uh, how to. Uh, put this in a way that we can completely do that, cutting, cutting the arm. I'm not sure how can we go ahead. We are really entrenched in all this that it's hard to um, to isolate ourselves from the international community. I don't think Afghanistan can do that, can survive without that. I understand that we have our Islamic values, which are we have the Islamic teachings, which are sufficient and beautiful teachings for a prosperous society. Yeah. If, it's, if it's truly in place, yes. but the problem is that the challenges we face yeah. today, how can we um, have that application of Islamic teachings? Yeah. How can we go ahead without this international community? Cutting that arm, to be honest, is still is something that I don't think is feasible in this day and age. How, what is the state of uh, Muslim Ummah or Muslim nation? Just, I just want to be clear, it was a figurative expression. Because I know the conversation. I know, cutting the connection or being independent of the Islamic, I mean, the international community, I understand that. Uh, but I feel um, that the state of Muslim nations are not strong enough, enough to be in that position to do that. I think we can agree because, because I don't want to pretend to suggest that, you know, 
everyone I have the answers or that we you know the answers are obvious or abundantly clear about you know exactly what the Taliban should do today but I think just trying to you know bring that conversation back to young Muslims living in Australia and I want to try and end it on this note as well our podcast is getting a little bit long, lengthy here but yeah. but you know what kind of um, way forward can young Muslims living in Australia be they part of the Afghan diaspora in you know Melbourne's got a strong Afghan community so does Sydney um, or, you know, I don't want to limit it to that because of the notions of, you know, ummah and, you know, brotherhood that we've mentioned earlier. Yeah. It's a wider conversation for all young Muslims. You know, how can we actually try and formulate a clearer vision, political vision of that kind of independent political project, a, a good project that's based on the principles of Islam and the values of Islam? Wasim, your thoughts on that? Um, if I could say just very quickly before that, um, how excruciatingly painful it is to hear commentary like that we like that we heard with Scott Morrison um, as if we're all blind to the experiences of the last 20 years um, you know really it's it's sometimes beyond the imagination that um, we allow uh, we allow Western governments and their representatives to even occupy a single second of space um, I think the problem, of course, is that because for such a long period of time, we've enjoyed um, a zero independent political will um, mm. and we've developed a, an overbearing inferiority complex that we, don't, we can't imagine ourselves um, standing on our own two feet or standing up to our oppressors. Um, and we've been so far removed from power that we can't imagine ourselves from occupying those positions. Um, and so we give, we lend these people credence much more than, than is deserving. And I say that not just as a matter of principle, but you cannot walk into a country and destroy it and walk away and just say sorry um, in the way that John Howard did yeah. and the way that they're trying to do now. Um, and worse than that, justify it. I mean, there is the concept of reparations. There is the concept of holding states to account. Um, it's just because we are so political inept today um, that we're not in a position to make any demands um, and that is why I strongly push this view that we need to start imagining ways in which we can construct independent political will for the Muslims such that we can start asserting ourselves. And, you know, and, and what you refer to in terms of whether you isolate or don't isolate, that's not that's not the um, um, the conversation to be had. You can never isolate yourself. And that's the example of the Prophet, and nor is it the intention of Islam to do that. It's the opposite. We are um, tasked to go out and to engage the world. But what we're, we're essentially saying is that we need to address the enormity of the imbalance of power that defines our relationship with the outside world at the moment. So in that way, as Muslims here, to refer to your question specifically, uh, we need to be clear about how we need to centre our Islam, not just in terms of our thoughts and our creeds, but in terms of our politics. And what that means practically is that we need to imagine our, uh, and appreciate Islam as embodying that political project um, and us playing our, our particular contributions to that. Um, we cannot accept a set of conditions which we witness in the Muslim world where we are divided, where in replace of the Khilafah we have modern nation states, 50 or more, um, and, in, 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 and in place of the Shara we have um, you know, a mix of democracy, of capitalism, of, of totalitarianism and, and all the other isms. Um, that cannot be a set of conditions that should be acceptable to us. And we experience here in the West the realities of democracy, of secularism, of capitalism, and we, we see it from a position of privilege um, and we are beneficiaries of that and that should impose upon us a moral 
obligation to do more um, uh, in terms of advancing the Islamic political project, um, given the difficulty of doing that in the Muslim world. So we need to be we need to be clear about we are we need to be clear about the fact that we are connected to the Ummah, that this Islamic political project is our project, irrespective of our of our uh, our geography, um, and we need to demonstrate to the world. Um, how we as an ummah will will establish a way of living or a way of imagining a new form of politics um, that can stand as a representative for the rest of the world. Um, certainly, it's a, it's a huge task. It's a big task, but we need to emphasize this idea of center in our Islam and being conscious of the fact that if we are not doing that, then something else serves as a center of our existence. And that, of course, is going to be either democracy, liberalism, or some otherism. Thank you for that, Wasim. Look, we are getting to uh, the end of our podcast now. And um, before I wrap up, um, Sister Hila, if you've got any, I'll have to say, unfortunately, short concluding remarks that we can take uh, before I close it off. Um, just quickly, from my experience, from uh, what I am doing my research, looking at Muslims in Australia um, and outside Australia, the wider community internationally, Muslims need to educate themselves with the true teachings of Islam. I see Muslims themselves being a, a victim, uh, or I, I would say even um, Islamophobic themselves. So they need to know the true teachings of Islam. They need to educate themselves and not be guided by the misrepresentation or the representations of Islam or Muslims in the media. So first of all, uh, the youth needs to understand their religion. They need to uh, know the true teachings and we need, shouldn't be confusing culture with the religion um, that a lot of them have got these issues of um, culture mixing it with religion yeah, and blaming yeah. religion for those cultural issues. So these are some of the starting points for the youth to understand Islam and uh, be a role model of a good Muslim. Inshallah. Jazakallah khair. Thank you very much, uh, Wasim and uh, Hila. Uh, we've had a good discussion here, alhamdulillah, but we have run out of time. And we could have spoken a lot more about uh, the issue as well, but uh, we're going to have to leave it at that, inshallah. Uh, once again, thank you both for being here with us. And uh, for our viewers and listeners, uh, we will be back on again in a fortnight's time, inshallah, 7.30 p.m., not this coming Monday, the one after. Uh, so please do to tune in then as well uh, for our upcoming episodes of the Convo podcast as well. Um, needless to say, I'm going to sound like a YouTuber now, but like and subscribe and all that kind of jazz, right? Like our Facebook page, Instagram, all that business. Um, you guys are probably more tech savvy than we are. So go ahead and do so, inshallah. Um, and thank you very much. We'll leave it there. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you.